Hello, I'm Hardin Coleman, and you're listening to Caring, Character, and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character and Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. As Lindsay Barquet and I embark upon the second semester of this podcast, it is impossible not to have interpersonal violence, polarization, and the failure to negotiate peaceful resolution of conflict all at the front of our mind. From shootings in Buffalo, Ivaldi, and elsewhere, to failure to refine bipartisan solutions to economic and social challenges, to the war in the Ukraine, it is hard not to fear for all our children and the world they will inherit. At the same time, it is important to remind ourselves about those people and community efforts that are, are focused on hope. There are a great many people who are working hard to create caring communities in which all children have equal opportunities to flourish. Communities in which there's a focus on character development, not only in terms of what it means for each individual person, but also in terms of what it means to efforts to create environments that embrace and serve everyone well. In this semester, we want to share the story of individuals inside and outside of educational settings who are using their talents and passions to support positive youth development with a particular focus on equity. If you want to follow this podcast and get more information about the participants, you can do so online at ccsr.substack.com. We also want to hear your thoughts about what brings you hope. Please leave your comments online or email me at harden at bu.edu. So Maggie, thank you for spending the, 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 the time with us and giving us some of your time. And I want to start by just having you introduce a little bit about who you are and, 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 and what you do. Okay. Um, I am Maggie Hawkins and I'm a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. <laughs> That's who I am and what I do. How much do you want me to well, say? So, so, but, you know, obviously we're, we, we want to engage because you do a lot of work that's about community building internationally. So we'd like to hear about oh, in okay. your words what you what okay. you're engaged in. So um, in my job and maybe not in my job, also not in my job, I do a lot of work internationally. I do a lot of work with communities and schools and um institutions of higher ed by schools, I mean, sort of pre-K-12 schools and, mm. and whatever. Uh, and, and I do teacher education. And um, historically, I've done a lot of work working with teachers um, who are teaching multilingual learners, perhaps better known as English learners in the U.S. And, mm. um, and, and with people all over, um, with issues concerned with students who are being schooled in a language that's not their home language. But that I think is not why I'm here today. So let me focus on the project yeah. that probably is. Mm-hmm. So I have a project called Global Story Bridges, <clears throat> which y'all can look up if you want, www.globalstorybridges.com. Yeah. But Global Story Bridges is a project that connects kids all over the world, um, all of whom virtually, I should say, all of whom lived in poor or under-resourced communities, um, most of whom live in developing countries, but not all, uh, but even the ones who don't live in communities of poverty. Um, and what based, the, the short version of what we do is that there, they will have a group of kids in a given site. And so that's maybe a dozen or so kids. It can't be done with a lot of kids. It 
in one site, unfortunately, and they have an adult who facilitates but does not teach. And this is not part of school. Well, it happens at school sometimes, but it's not part of school curriculum or mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. formal yep. school. Yep. And the kids are tasked with making digital stories or short videos of their lives and communities, which they then post on our website. Um, and then the kids in the other sites watch. They get mm -hmm. notified that there's a new video up and they watch in a group and they have a discussion about what they've seen facilitated by the adult and 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 they talk about who they think these other kids are and what what they you know are learning about who they are and what their lives are like and how that may or may not be similar or different to their own lives and um <clears throat> and then for every video that gets posted on the website there is in essence a, a chat space under it would be the simple way to say it so the kids watching the videos have this conversation and decide together, it, it's not social networking and it's not ever individual, but they decide together um, on comments and questions to post to the mm -hmm. young makers, the ones who made the video, and they do that. And then the kids who made the video get the questions and they sit together and discuss them and how they would like to answer them. And then they, you know, type. What would, be, what would be an example of a question that, uh, that one of the group would ask of the makers? Oh, well, big question, for example, um, to kids in some countries is, why do you wear uniforms to school? <laughs> or why don't girls have any hair in places, um, like in some places in Africa, for example, where girls have to have very short hair, it's a school mm -hmm. rule. Mm -hmm. um, or, so some of it's what I'm gonna call surface at yeah. that level. But because the exchanges both can go on, it's not like question, answer, okay, move on to the next thing. Yeah, yeah. They do because there's more videos being posted, but it can get deeper than that. And also because kids, so if kids in Uganda, because I said that, post a video and kids in Honduras ask them a question and then kids in China ask, like they're all seeing each other's. Yeah, so it yeah. becomes a much broader conversation. Um, and so we get into things like, and it depends on what the kids want to make a video about, but we had a site in Uganda do one called chapel in our school. Mm -hmm, and it mm -hmm. showed them singing and dancing in, in ways very specific to their community and culture, but that was part of chapel in their yep. school. And then that got into things like, do you believe in God? And then the Indian kids getting confused because they had multiple guys so they got got into all sorts of things um there that were interesting and the u.s kids saying but do you pray at school which is you know yep, confusing yep. out of context uh do you celebrate easter <laughs> do you, i mean you know the, the questions can be anything depending mm -hmm. on what the video is about mm -hmm. and of course we can only understand what we see through the lens of what we know yeah and so these are kids who don't have languages in common, except all of them are learners of English. So the, the texts, the chats are in English, but there's issues there too, because they're all learning it. And none yeah. of them are completely proficient in it, mm -hmm. um, but they don't share a language. They don't share a culture. They don't share cultural understandings of the signs mm -hmm. and the, the things that go into those yeah. sorts of communications. And so what you get is quite interesting. And sometimes we have very, contentious things like when the kids in india posted to the kids in uganda are you poor yeah <laughs> they're all poor yeah but they don't, it's how they see themselves and that would be the point is that 
they not only come, they, they learn from and with similarly aged peers, mm -hmm. they come to have these understandings of global others that they would never get reading in a textbook about yeah. life in India or life in whatever. Yeah. So they so, so Maggie, do you see that? So I'm, I'm trying to, do you see that as helping them? How, in what ways does that help them take more of themselves as a member of their own community? That's what I was just about to say. That's where I was going. Great, great, great. That they not only come to understand global others mm -hmm. and so become global citizens in those ways, but they come to have very different views of themselves because, mm -hmm. because that's part of how we all come to yep. our own identities is seeing how, you know, seeing ourselves reflected yep. mm -hmm. through others and their views of us mm -hmm. and saying, oh, wait a minute, here's this about my life. And yep. even in making the videos. I mean, yeah. the question for them is, what about your life is unique and might be interesting to people all over yeah. the world? And I have to think about that. And, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, and answering the questions, they come to see how things they take for granted, yeah. you know, are interpreted and come back to them through mm -hmm. others' eyes and voices. So do you find that they take a new appreciation of their world or develop a better analytical way of thinking about the world, or maybe both? I think, I think, I think both. And I think that in specific, what kids take mm -hmm. depends a lot as, as it always would on their own context and culture. So for example, I have kids, I have three Uganda sites. So I have kids in the site in Uganda who pretty much, I mean, they'd never had a computer or even electricity before I brought it in and gave them the computer. Mm -hmm. They didn't have interactions in person or virtually with, you know, people from around yep. the world or, mm -hmm. or even white people actually where they were. Um, they would have eventually, but they didn't happen to by the time I went and started this. Mm -hmm. um, and so they have certain sorts of reactions because it's a different, I started to say starting place, but not in a, a not in a um, hierarchical, exactly, yeah. way, which is different. And then I've got kids in a U.S. site who are all or mostly immigrant and refugee kids, and they've lived other places, and they're mm -hmm. in contact with family back home, and so transnational um, kinds of exchanges are more a part of their lives, mm -hmm. and so, mm -hmm. so it's, you know, who they are and, and, and the lenses through which they view themselves and others are very, very, very different. Yeah. So what brings you, what draws you to this work? What drew you here and how did you get to, to um, spend a huge amount of time, energy and your own resources in, in doing this work? What drew you to this? So there's multiple answers to that. And the first one probably would be that I said I was a professor, but I don't think I said that my specific areas of interest and expertise are education mm -hmm. um, on the one hand and language studies, applied linguistics, second language acquisition mm -hmm. on the other, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I've always been interested in how, what we used to call language and now say languaging, how languaging works in the world, mm -hmm. um, social semiotics, how people co-construct understandings through their mm -hmm. interactions and communications, mm -hmm. um, and perhaps especially interesting in the digital world, which yep. is a new landscape out there. Well, it's not that new, but you know, for these, some of these kids, it's new. Yeah. Um, 
And so communications and understandings across diversity and distance, equity in relations, in social relations, and in schooling and education, and so mm-hmm. many other things have always been central to what I do. Yeah. And it just so happened that I was working with um, a learning center here that is is not in a school, but it's part of a, a sort of a low-income housing development. Yep. They have a learning center there, and I was working with them and with the kids there. And then I was in Uganda, and I started working with um, one particular primary school that was in a very um, rural-ish mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. characterize it, but community. Um, fairly isolated, very, very poor kids. Um, And I just thought, how great would it be to put these kids, you know, in contact with one another? And it started with those two. Mm -hmm. At our, um, wait, Zenith, is Zenith high? (laughs) At our high point. we, which was prior to COVID, as would make sense. I think we had about 19 sites or so um, in 11 or 12 countries. And we have two clusters. We have high school age kids. We have kids who are sort of 11, 12 years old. Yeah. And they don't communicate with each other. We have sites at the um, lower age level and sites at the higher you know, age level. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because the communications are a bit different there, The what they do when how they think about it um and then COVID happened and and because people couldn't get to their sites and couldn't meet together and couldn't you know whatever it did slow us Mm -hmm. down we're back now yeah um so Maggie you you mentioned you mentioned equity which is which is one of these um um constructs that is emerging is central to a lot of conversations and 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 I'm finding sometimes people means very different things to different people. So I want to ask you two questions back to back. The first is, um, how does this project that you're working on um, facilitate equity? And when you, you when you use that word, what do you mean by it? Can I give you a sort of academic ish? answer, which I hate For to sure, do. You know, Maybe comfortable with an academic answer. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. So, I mean, equity means a lot of things when mm-hmm. you're working with um, the kinds of issues and places and people that always have been, even before it was more international. Mm-hmm. When you talk about what happens, for example, to English learners in U.S. schools, there's a lot of issues about yeah. access, about isolation, about, mm-hmm. um, you know, having the same opportunities mm-hmm, for, mm-hmm. to have the same level and quality of teaching and curriculum and ever, I mean, there's just so many equity issues, educational equity issues, mm-hmm. much less when I'm in these, you know, communities that I'm in. And so one of the things that I didn't mention about Global Story Bridges that I'll say very quickly is that over the years, the early years, it became really clear to me. So I do research. I'm a, I have to. I would lose my job if I didn't do yes. research on all the things that we do. So it's a project and it's a research project. And I realized how arrogant it was of me to be looking at the work of these kids where I didn't share their culture. I almost always don't share their language. Mm-hmm. And here I'm making 
the, you know, sort of analyses and evaluations of their communications and talking about how they're making sense of each other. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I know, right? So we developed an international research team and this does, uh, I'll get, it does go to equity, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the center of what we all do. I mean, the facilitators are community mm -hmm. folks who have to do that for some of whom are teachers who have to do that for free. So they're mm -hmm. committed to equity issues for, you know, providing things for these kids, yeah. giving it a lot of time. The research team has members um, from most, but not all of the countries that we're in and can give sort of emic or insider perspectives mm -hmm. of the kids' cultures, languages, and they're there in their sites and, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. We, there is an academic bit of this where we're theorizing what's happening in all of this. And I, several years ago, probably eight now or so, eight or nine years ago, came up with a theory that I call critical cosmopolitanism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it basically what it's saying is that there's lots of literature that's helpful. And one is this notion of cosmopolitanism, not like the magazine, not people yeah. coming in and, you know, having French food or German food or whatever it is, but following, um, Appia that we have obligations to one another in the mm -hmm. world, even those we don't know and, in my, that was his words, but in my mm -hmm. words, the importance of developing um, these disposition or stances of equity and mm -hmm. openness and inquiry and caring for one another. Mm -hmm. And for all of us who work on the project, I mean, it, it is a constant, the lens itself is a constant for yep. all of the researchers, mm -hmm. but for the facilitators too, there are so many examples I could give you, but it would take all of our time where in the interactions that kids have with each other, they're positioning one another. Are you poor? Which I already mentioned yeah. one example of that, um, where we're not having equity, equitable, they're not seeing each other as um, equal peers. Yeah. They're either, you know, one group is more resourced, one is less, one is more primitive, one is more I don't know, whatever the opposite of primitive is developed one, you know, and it's just the way they make sense of each other. And honestly, look at our world. Yeah. It's it the way it's, we all interact. But it, I, I take from that that what they, the part of the work that you get to do is when these kids, these, the, the, your participants start not only giving their story, but seeing other people's stories and engaging in their different frameworks. Yeah it increases their understanding of the way in which access to resources is really different around the world and access is critical. Getting access to opportunities is a critical piece of what makes the world tick. And they have to start thinking about what that means for themselves and others. So, Am I so making that up? No, that is a piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an important piece of it. But it is also true that all of us, again, look at a newspaper. When we engage in any way with others that we don't know intimately, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're doing it through, um, again, lenses. I keep, I didn't mean to use that word that many times, yeah. but it's, you know, it's from, um, 
it's, it's through stereotypes and biases and ways we categorize the other mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as less than us, access yep. or no access mm-hmm, to things. Mm-hmm. Poverty is a piece of it. Socioeconomic status is a piece mm-hmm, of it, mm-hmm. but it isn't the only one. Um, and so what I'm trying to do with these kids, it, what we're all trying to do with these kids is to get them to engage, to see this is someone who is very, very different from you. Mm-hmm. But they have a life that is equally important, needs to be equally valued, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that you need to understand mm-hmm. and engage with and mm-hmm. even develop relations with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that we, I hate this phrase, but we're, we're seeing it is sort of leveling a playing field. I don't love the, I, I hear, I hear, but it, so I, it, it's, learning to hear other people's stories and appreciate them without having to share it is, With, without, is, right, is without one of my mind. And without judging it yep, as yep. less than or feeling bad about yourself. Yeah. It's, it's embracing difference yep. and diversity and saying that's a good thing in the world, not yep. a bad thing. Yep. And we don't have to hate each other and fight each other. And that's right. You know, so so creating moments where experiencing the other doesn't drive self-protective tribalistic behaviors and battles, but could be seen as how do I have a relationship with the other without becoming them? So my my tribe still has value, right? But so does theirs. <laughs> and what would a world look like if we organized around the equal value of our tribes, as opposed exactly. to and not the need really- to dominate? Yeah, right. Exactly, and not reinscribing colonial perspectives mm-hmm. or oppressive mm-hmm. perspectives or mm-hmm. even just demeaning um, stances towards others. Mm-hmm. Yep. So the gift that you're giving these early adolescents, early to late adolescents, this opportunity as they form their sense of their place in the world, sense of their place in the world, the understanding that they can have a place and they don't have to be threatened that people have a different place. Exactly. And therefore when they're decision makers, if they can bring that forward in a way, they may be less likely to be driven to create systems that privilege their tribe over others, understanding that they can get good things if both tribes are are nurtured and and maybe if i were going to dream one step beyond that mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. just when they are decision makers that will happen but that they realize that they want to be in positions where they can be decision yep. makers yep. so that those things happen a real commitment to it that's good that's very powerful so i want to go back to something that we were talking about before we we started recording this and you're talking you about <laughs> I remember part of it. You know, not, I ain't dead yet, you know. Um, uh, um, but you were talking about in your classroom, you as you're engaging with pre-service teachers and educators, and you were sharing with them how much the world of work has changed is going forward. So I want to lift that, come back to that conversation. You've, you're, obviously, your work with the global storytelling is part of a system worldview changing approach, but done at a, a person-to-person level, you know, 
It's not this um, a thousand people are going to be transformed all at once. But if you get 10 to 15 kids in an environment who get this transformation experience, that could be part of system change. Yeah, but times 20 sites per year, yeah. at least it's does something. No, sub, yeah, um, and, and, and substantive. But then you're you're also as an edge as a pre-service educator, you have the impact of the next generation of, of, of leaders. And you were talking in that role as to how you've seen the world of work change rapidly in the past five years. And we're encouraging them to be prepared for the next changes. So I was wondering if you share with us what you shared with your students about your, your view of the changing world of work. Yeah, so um, I think that there is a lot being written now. There's stuff I've certainly read, even in popular media, newspapers or, mm -hmm. you know, whatever, to account for why there are no workers, for example. So, I mean, how many businesses do you know? And you're in Boston and I'm in mm -hmm. Wisconsin. And how many businesses do you know that can't find enough workers to staff what they do and are cutting back yeah. or closing yeah. theirs or something like that? Um, and the fact that people aren't really embracing going back to the office nine to five, the idea mm -hmm. of punching into a clock at some hour and punching out at another, yeah, like those aren't the businesses that want to be competitive for workers actually have to move away from that. Right. So yeah. the, the terrain of work is different <clears throat> and you can read all sorts of theories, people, um, feel like because the government gave COVID subsidies, people think they don't have to work because they, you know, you, you can read lots of things. But, yeah. but nonetheless, the terrain of working in workplaces and the nature of jobs and what they look like is different. And mm -hmm. back to academics, um, back 20 years ago, the, the New London Group and others in the pedagogy of multiliteracies, maybe we'll yep. slow that up. Um, we're drawing on, you know, the idea of a new world ordered and fast capitalism and all of that. And they were predicting that things were going to change. Yeah. But what I was saying to you, I didn't say that, but nobody could have predicted where we are now. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Even, even yes, things are going to change. The point of that was you're going to need in five years and 10 years, the kinds of skills you're going to need to be competitive in a workplace are not what they are now. And yeah. then the subsequent point that schools aren't really preparing us, preparing yes. students for that. And, and talk about a hidebound institution. So um, I got the opportunity to do a review actually with my son and one of, one of his um, graduates from um, our undergraduate program here at Boston University on issues of preparing teachers to serve culturally and linguistically diverse students. And deep within the literature is this ongoing thread that one, we have to recruit more um, embodied teachers with embodied diversity into the classrooms. That was the conversation the we were having, in fact. And, but the other piece is, how awful the conditions of work are for teachers. That right. teachers don't want their kids to become teachers, not because they didn't love the work, but the conditions are horrific. So and the so conditions, yes, they are, but that's sort of locally in any given place mm -hmm. for so many reasons now, including things that are being expected because of COVID and post-COVID realities that mm -hmm. teachers never had time to get prepared to do. Yeah. 
part of it's our era of schooling with increased, you know, I mean, they've been getting worse even pre-COVID. Yes. Because of, you know, the reliance on tests because of teachers being judged by how their students do on tests. Well, mm-hmm. that'll make teachers flee urban and yeah. schools really. Yeah. Yeah. But um, the other piece is they, you know, they have to be in there at 730 and they can't leave to yep. three. I mean, every, almost all the um, <clears throat> female identifying teachers I've ever talked with, the thing they loved about being retiring was they no longer had UI infections because they could go to the bathroom when they need to go to the bathroom. Right. And so right. all these things are just powerful. And so if you think about the <clears throat> world of work changing to accommodate the new digital realities, the, the way people learn, the way people need to live to be, is that going to happen in our school, in our K-12 schools? Well, I mean, I guess not quite what you asked me, mm-hmm. but we were talking about that in class. And then we were also, they had been reading about multimodality and technology and whatever. And I said to them, and these are people who are just now preparing to be secondary teachers. So mm-hmm. I would put them, the vast majority of them between mid twenties and mid thirties. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I said, how was technology used in your high school classrooms, or if you've been in high school since, and a number of them have as A's or as whatever, you know, how is it used? And I don't know if this means anything to you. We got Kahoot and we got Quizlet. We got these packaged things, what, you know, that mitigate against the rich kinds of learning practices that we know all kids, but specifically minoritized kids, poor kids, English Mm -hmm. learning kids, whatever, you know, need as well. So for what you ask, our work is a workplace environment going to change. Yeah. Our classroom practices going to change so that our teachers are teaching. Well, first of all, so that we have teachers, (laughs) but also, but also so that our teachers are teaching in ways that kids are getting the knowledge and the skills that they need, including back to Global story bridges, you know, I work even with undergrads, even with incoming first year students. And I say, tell me where you learned about global. And they're just out. Tell me where you learned about globalization in school. What? What? Yeah. Right. What? They don't. And so what kind of a world are we preparing students for? Their workplace, their understandings of self and other in the world, their, I mean, if I had you list, and we won't, we don't have time for it, but if I had you list the challenges in the yeah. world today, the major ones, mm-hmm. I mean, look at what's just happened. People being able to take one another's perspectives and views, yep. people being able to talk to one another, to work out really deep-seated differences in opinions. Where are we teaching kids to do that? And where... <laughs> Where do teachers have the opportunity if they want to? You know, you you used the word earlier about cosmopolitan cosmopolitan uh, perspective. So there there are places that are using this word cosmopolitan education. They tend to be independent, international schools, whatever <clears throat> they, they they have resources right. to do it. But there are these theories, very strong theories that, and they all start with grounding. Um, the learning within relationship between the teacher, within between students and with the teacher, that's relationship, and it's how do I engage in this social discourse in the world, 
as central to acquiring the language skills, the numeracy skills, the, the, the critical thinking skills we want, but that has to be first. And the skills and the academic knowledge come second. And, and we flipped that. We're, right now, we're still right. currently flipped. And that's why I came up with critical cosmopolitanism, because mm. not in, in the examples that you're talking about, but they're not most of the examples that one could find, and they're not very well, you know, disseminated. Yep. Um, and so the idea of relationality, mm -hmm. and that is all about relations, and also the critical aspect, meaning in this case, um, critical to do with power relations that infuse mm -hmm. every relationship, every interaction people mm -hmm. have, yeah. that's not there. And that's why I have put critical cosmopolitanism out there because yeah. it's things you said with, a, you know, with, 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 a, with, a, with, a, with, a, with, a, an increasingly sophisticated social structural lens and how that is central to who, who has equitable opportunity equity or does not it's central well maggie i want to thank you so much for your time and then i'm i'm, I'm going to say because we're going to have to come back to this because i know we're not done and when we'll, we'll look forward to these conversations as we go forward so i really appreciate you sharing with us your perspective and and look forward to ongoing conversations and can i just offer an invitation to anybody who wants to engage with any of this um, can they get my email address, Harden? Is that possible? Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why don't you, why don't you uh, give it to them and, and we'll, 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 we'll put up your bio with this whole thing as well. Okay, so put up the bio and let's have the email address under it. And then anybody who wants to email me, either to continue these conversations or if you're somewhere in the world where you work with the populations and want to commit some time and have a whole story bridges site, just let me know. That can great, be done. Great. Will do. Great. Great. Thanks, Harden. Well, thank you so much, and 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 we'll, we'll you you take care and be well. we'll you too. Be. You too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Caring Character and Community, the podcast of the Center for Character Social Responsibility at Boston University's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development. The development of this podcast has made possible the generous support from the BU's Wheelock College of Education and Human Development and a grant from the Kern Family Foundation. Thanks also to Lizzie Barquet for her editorial and production work on this podcast. The music you're, listening, you're hearing is Bluesy Vise by Doug Maxwell, produced by Media Right Productions. I'm Hardin Coleman, and thank you so much for listening.